distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, friends, welcome, good evening. On August the 4th, 1774, the occasion of his very first board meeting of senior fellows after his appointment, Provost John Healy Hutchinson delivered it to himself of the following opinion, that it would be highly useful to have professors of the modern languages established in the college. His colleagues, having as yet little inkling of the uncomfortable innovatory zeal of the new provost, agreed with him, and he accordingly applied to the Lord Lieutenant to endow chairs of German, French, Spanish and Italian at Trinity College. The date of the actual foundation of the chair of German and of the other modern languages is widely accepted as being October the 29th, 1776, when King George III of England confirmed the appointments by royal letter of two professors, Anthony Desca for German and French and a Portuguese emigre with the impressive name of R. Antonio Vieira Transtagano for Spanish and Italian. The king directed the £200 per annum from the royal estates in Ireland be shared between the two, but such had been the provost's enthusiasm for his idea that he had already paid Desca and Vieira 25% of his own salary of £800. <laughs> I'm quoting um, from an article written in 1977 um, for Ireland Today um, magazine to commemorate the uh, visit of the then President of Ireland, Patrick Hillary, uh, to um, the uh, uh, Republic of uh, Germany. Um, the one person in this room will certainly um, recognise those words because she wrote them. Um, they were written by uh, Professor Ida Sagara, herself um, then uh, the incumbent, very distinguished incumbent of the self-same 1776 Chair of German. Um, and we are here today to um, inaugurate um, her successor, but one, um, I believe, um, to the same Chair, Jürgen Barkov. Um, you have in front of you, or you should have in front of you, um, uh, a biography um, uh, um, outlining Jürgen's uh, uh, many and extraordinarily distinguished achievements. Um, I, I won't take you through uh, those now, uh, merely to draw your attention um, to the fact that Jürgen is himself um, a graduate of Hamburg uh, University. Um, and in 1968, I believe, in a fit of revolutionary fervor, Hamburg University voted to abolish academic gowns. Um, thus, you will remember, bringing about the decline of Western capitalism. <laughs> um, that is why, um, while I'm forced to stand here in this faintly preposterous getter, uh, Jürgen gets to give his speech in an elegant uh, black number. Um, I have sat around many tables and in many rooms with Jürgen over what is now many years, and I have come to recognise uh, um, that he is uh, a scholar, uh, an academic, uh, a university administrator and an intellectual citizen of such extraordinarily formidable 
ability um, uh, that uh, the rest of us, merely uh, normal um, uh, academics, um, uh, feel rather embarrassed uh, being in the same uh, room as him uh, sometimes. Um, Jürgen, when he, um, when his direct predecessor as the um, 1776 chair, Professor Murray McGowan, um, retired, uh, Jürgen gave a, a valedictory speech um, of, of, of such kindness, such generosity, and such details, personal uh, detail. Um, um, the, 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 it was an unforgettable experience for me. Being, I, I, I seriously contemplated uh, whether he, he hadn't been paid to give uh, the, the speech. But knowing Jürgen as I do, I just know that it was a characteristically uh, generous um, uh, uh, and open-hearted uh, 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 speech on his part. Um, I can't speak for King George III of England, um, but I, I like to think that uh, Professor Anthony Desca, and I know um, that Professor um, Sigara um, will be delighted to have um, such a distinguished successor as Jürgen Barkov. I am privileged to have him as a colleague and to work in a university um, um, that employs uh, colleagues as distinguished as Jürgen. So, it's quite enough out of me. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor of German, 1776. Jürgen Barkov. Provost, Dean, family, colleagues, friends, guests. Thank you for coming tonight to celebrate together the commitment that the Provost and the Dean are making to the strengthening of modern languages in our great university at a time where this is the far-sighted exception rather than the norm. It is a commitment very much in the spirit of Provost Heli Hutchinson. Dean, thank you for these very embarrassing words. What the Dean didn't tell you is that Heli Hutchinson at the same time employed two further instructors, one for dancing and one for fencing. <laughs> so I find myself in the, for me, very unlikely company of a fitness instructor. <laughs> but I don't mind being paralleled with the fencing teacher at all. After all, one of our finest tasks is to teach our students to be precise, nimble, and elegant with hard-hitting arguments. Indispensable indispensable accomplishments for the young gentlemen at the time who went on their grand tour after they learned the languages and fencing and dancing, the 18th century version of an Erasmus year abroad, <laughs> and also indispensable accomplishments today, accomplishments today to develop our graduate attributes, to think independently and communicate effectively. But let me begin on a more serious personal note. For a scholar of the late Enlightenment, it is a very particular honor to be the holder of a chair that dates back to that seminal period during which the key concepts of our modern age took shape, which makes it such a centrally important field of research. To give us a flavor of how well Provost Haley Hutchinson's innovation fitted into the political and cultural landscape of his time, let me briefly review some of the seminal events of 1776 which helped shape our Western culture, society, and polity. It will also set the scene for, our, for my specific topic. 
The first thing that comes to mind, especially given the week we are in, is of course the American Declaration of Independence, which famously proclaimed, quote, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A key document of the Enlightenment, it established the principles of individual freedom and human rights alongside the concept of democracy. An equally influential document in empowering the individual to forge his or, or her own destiny in a free and entrepreneurial spirit was published in the same year in the context of the Scottish Enlightenment. Adam Smith, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, is the foundational text of modern-day free market economics. In declaring and describing how the entrepreneur, in pursuing his enlightened self-interest, was ultimately, via what Smith called an invisible hand, working for the common good, Smith powerfully challenged the government-controlled mercantilism of the day and made the case for a free market economy. And it was in 1776 that in England the first three large steam engines based on James Watt's improvements were installed in factories, thus laying a decisive technological foundation for the Industrial Revolution. In 1776, Captain James Cook embarked on his third circumvention of the world, in combining, as his previous voyages, an enlightenment quest for new knowledge with colonial and economic motives. In Austria, we are moving into the German-speaking sphere, the enlightened Empress Maria Theresia abolished torture. And in Bavaria, Adam Weishaupt founded the secret society of the Illuminati, which had very little to do with Dan Brown's grossly distorted <laughs> fiction of it, but was rather an association in which the bourgeois elite and the nobility could come together as equals to foster enlightenment goals. When I came back to college after the Christmas break on one of the loo doors of the arts building, somebody had, had uh, drawn an emblem of the Illuminati and the text, the, the cleverest thing the Illuminati ever did was to make the world things think that, that they were a big joke. It's really interesting how these conspiracy theories are sort of alive and kicking. A little bit historical knowledge about what the Illuminati really were would help you. Johann Wolfgang Goethe was one of the members of the Illuminati, as was his Duke Karl August, who in 1776 made him a member of his Privy Council, having invited him to Weimar two years previously, after he had become famous with his controversial bestseller and first German contribution to world literature, The Sorrows of Young Werther. In 1776, they were joined in Weimar by the versatile philosopher, Superintendent Johann Gottfried Herder. You may feel that the latter two developments do not quite compare in significance, but they have the advantage of establishing a direct link back both to, uh, both back to Eli Hutchinson's decision and forward to the topic of my lecture. To Herder, we owe the enormously influential concept of cultural relativism, which challenged both French cultural hegemony in Europe at the time and the notion of cultural rivalry and superiority, which later dominated nationalism. For Herder, all cultures were of equal value and dignity and had to be understood in terms of the specific conditions which formed them, of which he saw language as the most important. Contextualized in this way, it becomes clear that Healy Hutchinson's innovation of 1776 was very much inspired by Enlightenment ideals of education, empowerment of the individual, an inquisitive spirit, 
tolerance, cosmopolitanism, and openness to the world. Goethe stayed in Weimar until his death, 1832. Here, besides producing an awe-inspiring oeuvre of total, in total of 143 volumes, he took on for many years the key ministries of finance and defence in a long life dedicated to Tätigkeit, a favourite term of Goethe that translates into activity as focused, result-oriented activity. Similarly, one of his life's maxims stated, Der Erfolg hat drei Buchstaben, tun. Success has three letters, action, or six letters, depending on what translation theory you are coming from. In 1796, Goethe published his second novel that is very much about Tätigkeit, Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship. The novel features a young merchant's son who rejects his predestined career in the office and instead takes a detour via the stage, art, love affairs, exploring the fringes of society and the flirtation with the life of nobility, before coming around to Goethe's ideals of purposeful activity. He joins a secret society, not unlike the Illuminati, one which combines and pursues in equal measure education, art, enterprise, and societal reform. It is a novel that offers the optimistic vision that the individual pursuit of happiness and the common good, to quote both the American Declaration of Independence and Adam Smith, are indeed reconcilable and together form an ideal. Wilhelm Meister propagates a harmonious reconciliation between what Georg Friedrich Hegel, in his aesthetics aptly called the poetry of the heart and the prose of circumstances. Hegel identified the novel genre as the defining art form of the bourgeois age and the one in which the Bürger negotiated his identity. Wilhelm Meister was nothing less than an aesthetic revolution. It transformed the German novel from a mediocre genre of fairly ill repute into the leading art form of his epoch. It also created what became over the 19th century and until today the most distinctive contribution to the rich tradition of the European novel, the Bildungsroman, the novel of self-cultivation. It focuses on the inner life of an individual, the aspiration of a rounded education of the whole person, the equal and if possible harmonious development of a person's emotional and intellectual side, of high-minded visions and lofty ideas, as well as practical involvement and a successful career. It is a specific German contribution to the archetypal narrative of the hero's quest, where the young man who, in search of his identity, leaves the safety of his familiar surroundings for adventure and the unknown, faces the monster in various shapes and forms, proves and finds himself or not. With its focus on ongoing self-cultivation, which aptly reflects the quintessentially processual nature of identity formation, it celebrates lifelong learning and the commitment to develop continuously, to quote the third of our graduate attributes. Throughout the 19th and 20th century, and pretty much until today, most ambitious German novelists, in some way or another, try their hands on the genre, rewriting it for their own time. Unsurprisingly, the end is rarely a harmonious one in these novels, and beginning with Wilhelm Meister, they speak as much and increasingly more about loss and failure as of success and harmonious roundedness. The Bildungsroman focuses on the formation of the modern subject, and it owes much to the influence of German idealist thinking, more particularly the subject philosophies of Immanuel Kant and Johann Gottlieb Fichte. It also makes a virtue out of a vice in the sense that at the end of the 18th century, 
the deeply fragmented, politically weak and economically backward Holy Roman Empire of the German nation simply had no society from which to draw a rich and complex portrait for a society novel of the kind England and France produced in such abundance. The novel's preoccupation with education furthermore came from the desire to offer both the individual and society and an evolutionary and peaceful alternative to the disastrous violent convulsions of the French Revolution. The preoccupation with the rounded education was finally also a reaction to the increased compartmentalization of modern life around this time. The emergence of the division of labor in the work sphere and the concomitant fear that it would lead to one-sided specialization, the modern Fachidiot, or nerd. That hasn't gone away as an issue. Goethe's concern was, sh concern was shared by some of his great contemporaries, among them his friend Friedrich Schiller, who in his lucid letters on the aesthetic education of humankind of 1795 argued that the aesthetic experience could have a fundamentally civilizing effect on the individual. Uh, debated and controversial theory to today. Meanwhile in Berlin, the philosophers Friedrich Schleiermacher and Wilhelm von Humboldt forged the blueprint for the modern European university with its focus on critical thinking, holistic education, transferable skills, and an insistence on a capstone project. I mean, independent research already at undergraduate level. A good few of these educational novels seem to, which seem to exemplify Madame de Stahl's verdict on the Germans as an inward-looking and unworldly Volk der Dichter und Denker, people of poets and thinkers, are also merchant novels, and as such much more oriented towards entrepreneurial engagement and preoccupied with economic questions than they have been given credit for. The German merchant novel is a substantive subgenre of the German novel, which until recently has been largely overlooked by scholarship. It reflects the rise of the merchant classes throughout the 19th century in parallel with the rise of Germany's economy and industry from a provincial backwater around 1800 to the leading industrial nation of continental Europe and a serious rival to England. An early monograph on the genre lists 112 relevant titles between the publication of Wilhelm Meister in 1796 and 1917. For this lecture, I have picked four of the best well-known, canonical, influential, influential and best-selling merchant novels from the 19th century, which are also good reads. My colleagues, who are greater specialists of the 19th century, and there are a few in the room, will, of course, miss many other prominent examples. I freely admit that my selection has a very personal side, drawing on my history as a reader, student, and scholar of German literature. To mention this gives me an opportunity to acknowledge that every academic achievement, every scholarly career, and most certainly mine, owes so much to others. Goethe's Wilhelm Meister I got to know and love as a student in Hamburg, where in my first semester my two great academic teachers and mentors, the late Karl Robert Mandelsohn, a towering figure of Goethe scholarship and world authority on Goethe reception, and my later doctor father, Hartmut Böhme, hugely influential pioneer for cultural studies as a discipline in Germany, gave seminars on the novel which I both attended. The following year, I spent as a one-year student here in Trinity College Dublin, where the then professor of German and most distinguished holder of the 1776 chair in its history, Ida Segara, introduced me to Freitag's debit and credit. 
I cannot express how much I owe academically and personally to these three. When I returned to Trinity in 1988 as a DRD lecturer, I gave in my first year seminars on Goethe's novel and on Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks. We all know how often research-led teaching leads to teaching-led research. We all know how much inspiration we get from our brilliant students. And my lifelong interest in and passion for Swiss literature, which led me to Gottfried Keller's Martin Salander, was triggered by my dear Swiss wife Doris, who brought me into such close contact with the Swiss cultural sphere. If you can't say it in an inaugural, when can you? <laughs> to all of you here, present and far away, revered, revered academic teachers and mentors, students, my colleagues in the department, past and present, within the school and the college overall, friends and my dear family, a most sincere thank you. And now I had two pictures of our two cats sitting, squatting on my desk because they tried to help me as well with my work over Christmas, but they didn't display. Back to business. These merchant novels work on different levels. They offer literary depictions of the economy as a societal sphere and thematize the interrelationships between the business world with the sphere of culture, society and politics, both in an affirmative and in a critical perspective. In their portrayal of merchant protagonists, there are also complex explorations of mental dispositions, attitudes, values, and behaviors of the Homo economicus as it developed during the 19th century. As such, they counteract and contradict an often reductive standard definition of the Homo economicus as only driven by self-interest, rationality, and a calculative mind. Instead, they offer a more nuanced portrayal of the habitus formation of the merchant class, to use the concept of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. It is important to note that as widely read and discussed texts, these novels not only portray and mirror the mentality of this specific bourgeois German merchant identity, but co-produce it, influence the hearts and minds of their readers, provide role models, and offer critical reflections. Realist novels are particularly rich in the way in which their economy of signs, symbols, and structures reflect and co-produce what Stephen Greenblatt and Clifford Geertz have described as poetics of culture, the representation and symbolization of wider societal discourses, which constitute and transmit culture as an ensemble of codes and practices. We have to interrogate, we have to interrogate these novels at the level of plot and character, but also at the level of structure and aesthetics, in which the mechanisms and dynamics of the economic sphere at times become crucial devices. There is a relatively new subgenre of literary economic literary criticism devoted to the study of this interrelationship between economics and literature, which is called literary economics. It is much more developed in English and American studies, but for German literature scholars such as Jochen Hörisch, Josef Vogel, Thomas Wegmann, and more recently Manuel Bauer have done pioneering work, with the best researched author again being Goethe. And here in Trinity, our new colleague and professor in German, Mary Crossgrove, works on literary economics and contemporary prose. I have to admit that my specific theme within this wide field, the relationship between entrepreneurship and imagination, is partly inspired by our own innovation and entrepreneurship strategy, at the heart of which is a commitment to encourage and inculcate an entrepreneurial spirit in all our students across the disciplines. So one of the questions we should ask is, do these merchant novels 
in which the themes of education and culture are never far away from, their, from within their specific German tradition and across cultures and epochs have something valuable to say to us for our own efforts. True, most protagonists of these novels are not entrepreneurs in the modern sense, but precisely that is of interest, how these texts contextualize business acumen and appetite for innovation within wider identity narratives. So I come to my first text. And in case you are getting worried that it took me almost 20 minutes for my introduction, um, it's overall 45, 50 minutes what I have to say. <laughs> so it's not too bad, I hope. So let us take a closer look at our first text. When Wilhelm Meister flees the boredom and the utilitarian spirit of his merchant apprenticeship in order to embark on his apprenticeship in life, he is, as the ironic title of the novel suggests, all but a master in the art of living. He embraces the world of the theatre and of the nobility as it seems to promise him a fuller life, richer experiences, more opportunities to develop his personality. He is, of course, naive and an archetypal schwärmer or enthusiast of the epoch with a lively imagination. He is a classic case of the grass is always greener on the other side, though it also reflects the general anxieties of his age concerning the possible predominance of the Homo economicus. The autorial narrator of the novel has sympathy for this, but also treats the enthusiasm and lack of experience of its protagonist with considerable irony, as does the novel's structure. I think the enduring attractiveness of tales like these lies not least in the fact that we all can identify to a degree with this, and that some of this can be found in every biography that we all sort of try to negotiate between the poetry of the heart and the prose of circumstances for most of our lives. After all, we encourage extracurricular activities and informal learning as crucial elements of the Trinity experience, and have sympathy for the student who in his or her desire to develop continuously prioritizes players over the laboratory or the debating chambers over the library, though not, of course, in final year. However, it is one of the structural ironies of the novel that counteract Wilhelm's naivety and instill a strong sense of realism in the book that his attempts to escape from the pressures of the economic sphere into the realm of art are entirely unsuccessful. The spirit of calculation and greed is ever-present in the travelling theatre company that he associates himself with. The repertoire is chosen not for its aesthetic or moral merit, but for profitability. And everyone is looking after their own financial advantage, constantly bickering about fees and salaries. He later buys his way into a theatre company by financing, financing its activities, and then they let him direct plays and also play, uh, play Hamlet, actually. And at the end, his initiation as a member of secret society of the Tower via Masonic ritual is underpinned by becoming an associate, investing large parts of his inheritance into their business endeavors in Europe and overseas. They plan to go to America because the environment is less restricted and regulated over there. Economic questions are so predominant in the novel that the Romantics, Goethe's most ardent admirers, but also his fiercest critics and rivals, in a productive one-sided reading, dismissed the novel as little more than an economics manual. I quote Novalis, At the end, economics is all that is left, and the true nature of things. End of quote. When he joins the theatre company as a financier, or financier, director, and main actor, 
he becomes a driven creative and cultural entrepreneur, as his main motivation is to raise the artistic stakes of the troupe as well as their social status and to give it a moral purpose. He envisions their endeavors as part of the movement to establish a national theater in Germany, a theater that would express and foster middle-class confidence and identity and become a central tool in educating the nation. The historical background to this is the attempts to establish a Nationaltheater in the late 1760s in the Hanseatic City Republic of Hamburg as a bourgeois public space, artistically spearheaded by the foremost Enlightenment author Gotthold Fred Lessing and supported by wealthy merchants as investors and philanthropic donors. While these ambitions ultimately do not come to fruition, they are an example of how enthusiasm, imaginative excess, innovative spirit and social purpose together create vision and unleash ambition. For his personal development, Wilhelm makes good use of the theatre sphere as it allows him to try out new social roles, alternative identities on the stage, as an experience without real-life consequences. Reading literature enables something similar. I come back to that. Overall, the novel demonstrates that Wilhelm's theatrical career, as well as his numerous encounters with art, both extend and discipline his imagination. In Pierre Bourdieu's terms, he is accumulating considerable cultural and social capital throughout. A key ingredient until today for both entrepreneurial success, a position and active role in society, and a fulfilled life. Towards the end of the novel, Wilhelm reunites with his merchant friend Werner, who in the meantime has been running a very successful business and has made a fortune. This is how Werner is described, and I want you to listen to some German, so I read the quotes in German, but you can read the English translation on the screen. Der gute Mann schien eher zurück als vorwärts gegangen zu sein. Er war viel magerer als ehemals, sein spitzes Gesicht schien feiner, seine Nase länger zu sein, seine Stirn und sein Scheitel waren von Haaren entblößt, seine Stimme hellheftig und schreiend und seine eingedrückte Brust. Seine vorfallenden Schultern, seine farblosen Wangen ließen keinen Zweifel übrig, dass ein arbeitsamer Hypochondrist gegenwärtig sei. And uh, I don't read the rest of the quote. The novel leaves no doubt, no doubt about gain and loss in this juxtaposition between the typical homo economicus focused on maximizing profit and the cultural and social entrepreneur who took a detour before turning to the world of business, especially as his new friends also involved him in their plans for society reform, adding the element of social responsibility to his attributes and making them complete. Overall, the novel treats its protagonist in a very liberal spirit and strongly endorses the value of detours and of airing, which for the educational theories of the time was very innovative. Throughout his adventures, as we learn towards the end, he has been observed and indirectly guided by the Society of the Tower, Illuminati again, who trust him, although they disapprove of many of his decisions. Some readers have identified Adam Smith's invisible hand in the central structural device of the novel that Willem's pursuit of his individual inclinations ultimately and somewhat automatically works towards the good not only for himself but for society. Goethe, who knew more about contemporary economics than most other writers, put the key mechanism of the free market economy at the structural heart of this merchant novel of personal development. And we can identify another fundamental parallel between economic and narrative structures. One of the much praised strengths of this novel is that it is very far from presenting personal growth as a linear process of gain. 
Instead, it acknowledges that growing up comes at a price. Wilhelm gains in sophistication, purpose, and a sense of responsibility, but loses some of his earlier enthusiasm and spontaneity. He lands the rich noblewoman Natalie as a bride at the end, but she's far less passionate and warm-hearted than his first love, the actress Marianne. He joins a circle of friends with whom to enjoy art, make money, and reform society, but his charge and soulmate Mignon, who personifies spontaneity and poetry more purely than any other character in German literature, cannot live in the cold and sober modern world and has to die. As Thomas Wegmann has argued, the structure of loss and gain in Wilhelm's development follows the mechanisms of double-entry bookkeeping, where every credit corresponds to a debit, reflecting how deeply economic thinking determines subject constitution in the modern age. Gustav Freitag's Debit and Credit. Gustav Freitag's Debit and Credit of 1855 is also an educational novel, closely modeled on and with many intertextual references to the Goethe to Goethe's model. Its title already indicates the primacy of the economic sphere and indeed, from early childhood, its hero Anton Wohlfahrt is predestined for his career. From the moment he joins the merchant business of Theo Schröder as an apprentice, he wholeheartedly identifies with this world and its values. He wavers only when he is, like Wilhelm, drawn to the sphere of the nobility, falls in love with Count Rotsattel's daughter Lenore, and takes charge of their business for a while, only to realize that their world of false sentiment, sense of entitlement and decadence is not his, and that he will never be accepted as an equal. The novel's happy ending sees him becoming an associate of his admired principal and getting his sister's hand in marriage. This is revealed and confirmed in the final pages by her giving him access to the company's Geheimbuch, secret ledger, very romantic, an initiation ritual which reveals the total congruence in this novel of the affairs of the heart and the affairs of business. Handlung in German has a double meaning of both plot narrative and merchant business, and in the case of Freitag's novel they are pretty much identical. The book was the bestseller for its century, apart from the Bible, and popular as a middle-class confirmation gift. No piece of literature has been as influential in molding the habitus of the economic bourgeoisie in Germany in the 19th century. Written after the failed 1848 revolution, after which the liberal Bürgertum, to which its author belonged, concentrated on economic endeavors as its democratic ideals could not be realized, it is a literary illustration of bourgeois and economic virtues, such as industriousness, reliability, sense of duty, moderate risk-taking, measure, honesty, and moral integrity. It's, it is optimistic in spirit, affirms these values, and invites identification by singing the praises of the German entrepreneurial class. This is entirely in line with the poetics of bourgeois realism, of which the novel is a prime example. To poeticize, within mimetic practices that avoid excess or undue exaggeration, the everyday, and quote, find the German people at work. As a theoretician of realism, Julian Schmidt put it, in all of this, the imagination, or better, a certain kind of it, has a crucial role. In a famous key passage of the novel, Anton Wohlfahrt, in conversation with the melancholic Jewish poet and private scholar Bernhard Ehrenthal, defends his world against the common charge of being boring, repetitive, unexciting, and prosaic. He does so by poeticizing the world of trade and commerce as one of ubiquitous connections between people and cultures. Ah, ich weiß mir gar nichts, 
was so interessant ist als das Geschäft. Wir leben mitten unter einem bunten Gewebe von zahllosen Fäden, die sich von einem Menschen zu dem anderen über Land und Meer aus einem Weltteil in den anderen spinnen. Und da ich das Gefühl habe, dass auch ich mithilfe, und so wenig ich auch vermag, doch dazu beitrage, dass jeder Mensch mit jedem anderen Menschen in fortwährender Verbindung erhalten wird, so kann ich wohl vergnügt über meine Tätigkeit sein. Wenn ich einen Sack, Kaffee mit Wasser, äh, einen Sack mit Kaffee auf die Waage setze, so knüpfe ich einen unsichtbaren Faden zwischen der Kolonistentochter in Brasilien, welche die Bohnen abgepflückt hat, und dem jungen Bauernburschen, der sie zum Frühstück trägt. Anton's imagination portrays the merchant as a key enabler in an unbounded web of commercial and human relationships around the globe. This seems quite topical, preempting today's excitement about the limitless connective possibilities of globalization. That these are also opportunities for profit does not feature here and does not seem to matter. In Anton's vivid imagination, the merchant is wholly at the service of this beneficial worldwide circulation of good, goods It is thus a colorful illustration of Adam Smith's axiom that his self-interest is automatically in the interest of the whole. Wohlfahrt means welfare in German, and the novel leaves no doubt that he, in pursuit of his own happiness, is also working towards the general welfare. Tellingly, however, until immediately afterwards, cites a recent dramatic bankruptcy as counterproof to the charge, quote, that our business lacks passion and great emotions, unquote leaving it precariously open whether such emotions are those of compassion or rather of schadenfreude about the demise of a rival or indeed about the anxieties that a similar catastrophe might befall oneself. Anton's views and his method of poeticizing the world of commerce are also that of the novel as a whole. On one level, we can read this autopoetologically as a reflection of how within the poetics of culture The literary model inspires and influences the attitudes of its readers. On another level, it shows the enormous homogeneity of the novel. Its message is entirely congruent with the virtues of its model hero. He is a classic homo economicus who uses his imagination for one purpose only, to embellish his own world of business and its values. This one dimensionality corresponds to another structural feature of the text. It constructs merchant identity in a stark process of othering. All virtues, all positive aspects of commercial life are on the side of the bourgeois protagonists. All negative aspects, excessive profiteering, selfishness, greed, irresponsible risk-taking, speculation, dishonesty, fraud, and illegal business practices are projected onto other societal groups. The nobility, the Poles, the, the merchant businesses in Breslau, in Wroclaw, or, and principally, the Jews. The dark and ugly side of modern-day capitalism does feature prominently in debit and credit, but it is entirely relegated to the other side. In what made the book a conspicuous example of economic anti-Semitism, it is chiefly Anton's negative counterfoil and mirror character Feitel Itzig and other Jews that carry the problematic attributes of the modern business environment. This black-and-white scheme strongly affects the aesthetic quality of the novel. While Itzig's portrait is a malignant caricature, Anton's positivity is so overdetermined that it becomes sterile and wooden. As so often in trivial literature, the novel is arguably a borderline case, an ideological content that reinforces problematic stereotypes is accompanied and indeed made possible 
by an aesthetically undifferentiated formal treatment. On the other hand, often texts like Freitas, which lack in artistic sophistication, but have a strong and clear message, are particularly representative, representative for their time, and therefore valuable for cultural diagnostics. Martin Zalander, the eponymous hero of Gottfried Keller's merchant novel of 1886, comes closest to our modern-day understanding of an entrepreneur. He is from a humble farming background, gets an education, and works as a primary school teacher before starting his own business. He clearly has business acumen, making a considerable fortune three times, twice of these overseas in Brazil. Like uh, debit and credit, these two novels could also be read as colonial novels. My colleague Florian Kropp has done so, who is also here. The reader learns, but in the novel, the reader learns very little about how exactly he does this. Instead, it is situated in 1860s and 1870s in Switzerland, opening with Ritalanda's return to his family after seven years, only to find that his newly acquired fortune has for the most part been lost in the fraudulent and entirely transparent insolvency of the reckless Louis Wohlwendt. The same Wohlwendt, a former classmate and friend, had also bankrupted him previously, after the guarantee which Salanda had given to secure a fresh credit for Volvent's high-risk speculative investments was called in. While Salanda was ruined, Volvent, we are told, lebte noch Jahr und Tag in und von dem Konkurse. The name Volvent, he who turns aware welfare, and not in the meaning of welfare payments, is as crudely symbolic as Wohlfahrt and clearly an intertextual illusion. While in debit and credit, the integrity of its merchant protagonists was not questioned in any way, Zalanda and Volvent represent opposite poles. After returning from Brazil for a second time in 1870, Zalanda is more cautious and invests his fortune in property, which is experiencing such a boom that he begins to be worried about the bedenkliche Umhergreifen um, der Baulust, welcher er ja selbst Vorschub leistete, and an increasingly likely unvermeidlichen Häuserkrach. <laughs> Keller gives a chilling portrayal of the mechanisms of a property boom investment bubble, not unlike our recent one. He uses the literary imagination to describe the boom and bust cycles of modern-day unbridled capitalism and to offer a scathing critique of an abundance of unethical behavior and criminal energy against the lack of effective state control. The historical background to this is the Gründerkrach of 1873, the stock exchange crash, which brought the boom years following the foundation of the German Reich in 1870 to an abrupt end and caused a deflationary period until the 1890s. As one of Europe's most advanced economies, Switzerland was deeply affected by this crisis. The Swiss Confederation had been, since the federal constitution of 1848, the politically most progressive country in Europe, with some cantons, like Zurich, after 1769 already employing the full instruments of direct democracy. Gottfried Keller is deeply identified with Swiss democracy. From 1861 until 1876, he was Staatsschreiber of his native canton Zurich, had the highest civil servant, head of administration, and secretary to the government. This civic spirit is mirrored in the novel in Salander's activities as a parliamentarian on canton level and his engagement for improvements in the educational system. Keller was particularly worried that the fraudulent and unethical practices of an unbridled speculative financial system would undermine model democracy in Switzerland 
and with his novel called for a renewal of business ethics based on civic responsibility. That rings familiar as well. And finally, Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks. In his Nobel Prize winning first novel, the 26-year-old, offspring of a merchant dynasty celebrated and transposed into world literature, the world of his own family, as one of the leading patrician families in the proud Hanseatic city republic of Lübeck. Lübeck as the capital of the late medieval Hansa could look, could look back to a uniquely distinguished tradition in which entrepreneurship and self-government were for centuries inseparable. Budenbrooks is rightly one of the most read and most loved texts of German literature. It is also the pinnacle of the realist novel in the German language, and at the same time its transition to the modern psychological novel. It is not an educational novel, but rather a family saga. The vividness, richness of detail, and plasticity of its many memorable characters, so easy to identify with, the wealth of familiar constellations and conflicts which present, in a specific bourgeois setting, archetypal situations of every upbringing, and above all, like siblings' rivalry, for example, and above all, the unique blend of irony and warmth with which Mann treats the world of his forefathers, and for which he was first ostracized and later celebrated by his Lübeck compatriots, these are some of the reasons for the novel's enduring popularity. So if you go away from this lecture and think, I want to read one of these texts, start with Budenkopf's. As a generational novel, it centers around the three principles of the family firm, between the years 1835 and 1877, and describes the development from Johann, a decisive, practical man of action of impeccable business ethics, but few scruples and fewer words, to Jean, a man of increasing sensibilities and religious introspection, to Thomas Budenberg, culturally more refined and reflective than his forefathers. He is also the most successful Budenberg in the public sphere, but at the same time increasingly prone to self-doubt and fatigue. Thomas Budenbrook is a central and most intriguing male character of the novel, in whom Mann invested elements of a self-portrait as well as his admiration for his own father. He is full of ambition to add luster to the family name and fortune to its coffers, is, in his early days, a daring and imaginative businessman, admired by his colleagues and rivals, and he is at this point also an energetic innovator and really good change manager. Thomas' interest in literature, as well as his refined taste in women, mark him as something of an outsider, as does the importance he increasingly attaches to his outer appearance. Yet his eloquence, elegance, charm and civic spirit allow him to acquire substantially more cultural and social capital than the Budenbrooks already had accumulated. He is, like Thomas Mann's father, elected senator and takes over the crucial taxation portfolio, that's the ministers in the Hanseatic City Republic, until today, and becomes the right-hand man of the mayor. For these triumphs and accomplishments, as well as for the subsequent rapid weakening of his self-confidence and energy, and his early demise, he dies utterly exhausted at 47, his imagination is absolutely central. From early on, he mobilizes fantasy and idealism to prop up his sense of duty and diligence against the nagging lack of identification with what is expected of him. In a key scene at the deathbed of his less dutiful outsider, Uncle Gotthold, he reflects on the sense of poetry which enables us, 
mit einem stillen Enthusiasmus irgendein abstraktes Gut, einen alten Namen, ein Firmenschild zu hegen, zu pflegen, zu verteidigen, zu Ehren und Macht und Glanz zu bringen. Alles ist bloß ein Gleichnis auf Erden, Onkel Gotthold. Wusstest du das nicht? Wusstest du nicht, dass man auch in einer kleinen Stadt ein großer Mann sein kann? Dass man ein Cäsar sein kann an einem mäßigen Handelsplatz an der Ostsee? Freilich, dazu gehört ein wenig Fantasie, ein wenig Idealismus. Thomas Budenbrooks identity as a merchant has a distinctly playful element that is both its strengths and its weakness. It is reliant on imagination and self-awareness and for a while strengthens his strong ethics of achievement as he possesses Geist genug, seinen Ehrgeiz es im Kleinen zu Größe und Macht zu bringen, gleichzeitig zu belächeln und ernst zu nehmen. The quote on the screen is a bit longer. His imagination is a key ingredient of his business success and his high standing in the community, but it is ultimately also responsible for his decline, as such a paradoxical double act of persuasion and ironic subversion is strenuous and demanding, can undermine resolve and composure. The novel's subtitle, Decay of a Family, is a classic paratext as defined by Gérard Genet. It conditions the reader towards a particular reading before he opens the book. Thomas Budenbrook's fate is largely owed to the almost biologistic dynamics of decline which the novel stages and which owes so much to late 19th century social Darwinist theories of de decadence. If we ignore Mann's subtitle and set aside for a moment this dynamics of refinement and decadence, the book's enduring popularity is, I would argue, quite independent of this tendency. Thomas Budenbrook's decline is a fine state case study of burnout caused by a forced over-identification with a professional and personal identity that never quite fitted, but that circumstances, expectation and the rigorous ethos of self-discipline demanded. Woodenbrooks was written against the crisis of values. Nietzsche was one of Mann's heroes and the book is soaked in Nietzsche. And on the cusp to a relativist age in which values and identities have become increasingly unstable. Mobilizing one's imagination to deal with doubt and contingency and to cultivate an attitude that takes things symbolically and allows us in Spiele zu arbeiten und mit der Arbeit zu spielen. Schiller, to work at his play, to play at his work, to me seems like a very modern attitude and perhaps one that has some attraction for us in our own inevitable crisis of purpose and renegotiations of identity. So, Having traversed the long 19th century in four big steps, can we glean anything for today from these 19th century novels? I'm already overstretching your patience, so I would like to throw that question back to you for the discussion, but not entirely. Allow me a few brief concluding remarks. If Goethe's ideals of a rounded education, as exemplified in Wilhelm Meister, really do map well onto our current graduate attributes, think independently, communicate effectively, develop continuously and act responsibly, as I believe they do and hope to have shown, then this suggests a noteworthy continuity of values and aspirations. An imagination such as Wilhelm's that is at the same time extended and disciplined through art and culture is a valuable part of education. So, let's have related Trinity electives. Who joins? Yet Anton Wohlfahrt's much more limited use of his imagination in support of his utilitarian calling, on the other hand, can serve as a warning that you do not necessarily escape the fate of a one-sided homo economicus with the help of your imagination. It can also just reinforce what you already think. 
In the middle of a 19th century economic crisis, the engaged citizen Gottfried Keller uses the literary imagination in his Martin Salander for one of the classic functions of literature in modernity, that of a critique of tendencies of the age. Fifteen years later, Thomas Mann's classic presents in Thomas Budenbrook a case study of the central role of imagination for the negotiation of civic and entrepreneurial identity under the conditions of modern-day self-reflexivity and relativism. It is finally noteworthy that in three of these novels a commitment to one's business and a strong sense of civic engagement absolutely belong together. Here, in the Neil Theatre, over the last few years, in our consultations on citizenship and ethics with members from the business community, we made very similar points. As a prime medium of cultural memory, literature makes available to us the experiences of previous generations. And we have to judge and test what we can learn from them. As an African proverb says, if the lions had their own storytellers, it wouldn't always be the hunters who win. Today's lions of business and life might more than occasionally feel hunted. They surely have to gain from listening to their storytellers. However, we must also not forget that it is one of the key strengths of literature that it refuses to be instrumentalized as an easily applicable self-help guide. Instead, its specific imaginative surplus complicates things nicely through creating ambiguity, accommodating paradox, and subverting itself. Its fictional character also reminds us that the concepts through which we explain order and make sense of an often complex and chaotic world are constructions. Literary anthropology, informed by evolutionary psychology, tells us something that was already at the heart of Weimar classicism, namely that the aesthetic structures of a fictional text and works of art in general satisfy a deep-seated desire for order and contain the promise of a comprehensible and manageable world. And empirical psychology on the reception of fictional texts confirms that regular or indeed lifelong consumption of fiction not only considerably increases self-awareness and can lead to lasting changes in our concept of self, the ancients called that catharsis, but also improves empathy and social competence. It is in general interesting how recent findings in neuroscience and cognitive and evolutionary psychology in many ways validate what literary anthropology and hermeneutics have long argued. But of course, the best and ultimate reason why we read fiction is because it can be so much fun. The ancients called that delectatio. If you do not believe me, allow me to invoke in closing a higher authority, a scientist and woman of action. On her memorable visit to college in 2014, the most powerful woman in the world for over an hour answered questions from students. It was a good day for the college and for us in the German department, especially as the last question was asked in German and came from a student of German, Sam Ford. I was reliably told that this was not choreographed, but it couldn't have been more perfect, because he asked her, welches ist ihr Lieblingsbuch? What's your favorite book? <laughs> As a politician, she did not answer directly, and instead first mentioned the Bible as the book that most influenced her, perhaps unsurprising for a pastor's daughter, and then she spoke about her experience with reading in general. The answer made it into the 9 o'clock news that day. I quote from memory. 
When I really want to get away from it all, I go to my dacha, that's the weekend cottage, and take a big novel, let's say from Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, and completely immerse myself in this rich alternative world. End of quote. This was, of course, an answer specific to a GDR reading biography of her generation. The Russians were readily available, and they were, were revered in the GDR. It is also noteworthy that this practice was informed by an in German cultural history enormously influential cultural institution, the Protestant Rectory. But more importantly, it might seem obvious and would be tempting to read Angela Merkel's practice as escapist, getting away from the world's problems on her shoulders, and one fears that she didn't get much time for her Tolstoy over the last few years. But actually nothing could be further from the truth. By immersing ourselves in the counterworlds of literature, we tap into its imaginative surplus, Yes, in order to distance ourselves from the routines and demands of the everyday, but ultimately to see things from new perspectives, to imagine and narrate ourselves and the world differently, come up with fresh ideas, solutions, visions. Politicians need that. Entrepreneurs need that. We all need that. Thank you.